Hello, I'm Jill Baker and would like to welcome you to Henson's new series of podcasts which looks at welfare cases in the Court of Protection. These podcasts are intended for social care providers. Hempsons are leading health, social care and charity lawyers who work very closely with social care providers on the full range of legal issues they face. With no further ado, I will pass you over to Rachel Hawkin and Liz Stokes, who are both members of Hempsons Health and Social Care Advisory Team and are very experienced on working on COP welfare matters. And they will explain to you what episode four is going to cover. Thank you, Jill. So the social care sector plays an often understated roles in welfare cases. So this series, over a course of six episodes, aims to take you through the basics of court protection for welfare matters and delve into areas where providers are likely to be involved, what they should consider and how they can prepare. This fourth episode will be an overview discussion, looking at evidence provision in the court of protection from the perspective of a social care provider. So perhaps the first topic that we could look at within the subsection list is requests to provide evidence. And I thought the easiest way maybe to start this would be to look at the ways in which social care provider might be asked to give evidence. And in my mind, that splits really down to two categories. So informal and your more formal way of providing evidence. Would you agree? Hi, Rachel. Yeah, I think the involvement of social care providers in welfare uh, COP applications is is often fairly limited. But I think I think your way of approaching it via formal requests or informal is a really good one. Um, it might be, and I think we've touched on it in previous sessions, that there have that social care providers are, are less involved as a party in, in proceedings um, and more involved as in terms of providing witness assistance and evidence. Mm, absolutely, because they're involved day to day in the care provision, so they're the ones really to at hand to have things like care notes and knowing how community access has gone or knowing how to to one support has been delivered. And that's often the way that parties in the court need to know what's happening on the ground. So formal evidence, I would categorise that as the provision of witness statements or the provision of disclosure requested through a third party disclosure order, which we looked at in a previous episode. We've also looked at the provision of evidence, um, so I'm not going to go on to it in too much detail, but the way that you would formally provide evidence would be to exhibit it to a witness statement. And often that will be in response to a request, so it'd be very defined in terms of what evidence you need to provide, what the evidence needs to address, and what really the parties need to take a case further forward. What it might be useful to understand is what, what would happen if a, if a request was made to a social care provider for evidence um, and they failed to comply with it or um, mm. didn't want to comply with it. Yeah, that's a good point. So if you've been in receipt of a formal request to give evidence via witness statement, then that's usually forms part of court order. So if you receive that, you've been served with the court order, then the first instance is that you need to look at it very carefully in the same way that we would always advise with third party disclosure orders. Because if you don't comply, then you're, you're refusing to comply essentially with the request of the court. And that can bring significant sanctions. They're very unlikely to pursue sanctions in the court protection. It's not an adversarial court in that sense. But if you don't comply with orders, you don't comply with requests for information, then it's likely that the case will stall. And that in itself has a very detrimental impact to P, the service user at the heart. So if you do receive a request for formal evidence provision, then absolutely do what you'd always do with the third party disclosure order, for example. Um, take note of it, take heed, see what you need to provide, what the deadline is, think about who's best placed to provide it from the service. And often it's a manager, someone with a bit of senior oversight as to what's happening. 
and then you can look into detail as to what you need to address within the witness statement. Is there, um, if you're faced with a request for um, a witness statement, is there a formal particular format or is there a document? How, how would a social care provider find out what is, is actually needed? Mm. Presumably they would go back to the person requesting the, the evidence, but is there a formal layout that should be used? Yeah, there is. And you're right, they should go, if there are any queries, then the first instance is to go back to serve them with the order, and that's often the applicant in proceedings. But in terms of formats, the Court of Protection utilises a COP24, which is a publicly available PDF document that I'd encourage everybody just to have a quick Google on. And that basically provides a very set formulaic text box, if you like, where you put in the case details, your name, and then there's a very large blank box where you can basically put in your thoughts. So that helps to formulate um, the formal structure on how the courts accept evidence. In terms of when you're drafting evidence or providing it, then you use the order itself as a kind of a template, really, because within the term of the order, it should say what the statement is to address. And when you're providing evidence, that's often called exhibiting it to a witness statement, which basically means that you'll have a front cover sheet, which essentially has the case name, party details and details of what the evidence is within that exhibit, just so it's easy to find. So in terms of what you're putting in your witness statement, and witness statements, are, are there are some generalisations that you can use in various different courts for witness statements, but the actual contents of your witness statement will be um, particular to that case, obviously, but also mm. um, guided by what you're being asked to put into in a very case specific way. Yeah. But in general terms, um, I think there's a few pointers we can give in terms of providing that evidence in terms of making sure it's accurate, making sure it's entirely your own evidence and not relying on uh, evidence you may not actually be able to provide on your own behalf, uh, making sure if there's sort of dates and details in terms of P, they are accurate as well, because that is essentially the, the written evidence is the evidence that you'll be relying on, should you then be required to provide oral evidence um, in any ongoing proceedings. Mm. Um, is there anything else you'd add to that in terms of generalisations? Yeah, the only thing I would add, Liz, is that at the beginning, so the very formulaic structure of a witness statement should always set out who you are, so your name, who you're employed by, what your qualifications are, and then also, as you touched on moments ago, the source of your information. So if you are, for example, a manager who hasn't had any direct input with the individual, then you would state that your information and your record of belief would be from the care notes and your discussions with care staff members. So you would try and set out information that's within your direct knowledge and information that you've gleaned from other sources. And where you've gleaned it from other sources, you should set out what that source is. And that, again, is often the records. It could be from discussions with family members or it could be discussions that you've had with the individual themselves. And then very importantly, leading on to another way that you can provide evidence via oral evidence. It's always important to take heed of the statement of truth at the bottom of a witness statement. So that will say that you're signing in your name and you're dating to say that the information you provided in that statement is true to the best of your belief. If not, then the court can take sanctions. Often this is one where, again, it's not really invoked because everything, if you go on the basis of everything in your witness statement being truthful to the best of your knowledge, then that covers you. But it does mean that when you come to give evidence, if you need to in a hearing, that's often where the counsel, the parties will take you to first. They'll say, is this your name? Is this you? Did you sign the statement of truth? To make sure that it is still your recollection that you're working from. So in terms of giving 
oral evidence in a hearing. I've I've experienced of one social care provider um, quite recently giving evidence in a in a hearing who is absolutely brilliant, and it really came across that as a social care provider and as actual manager, they were the person who knew P best, and that is often I think what comes out with evidence provided by social care providers. But in terms of the practical pointers, if you are asked to give oral evidence, um, have you got any top tips? Presumably you need to have the practical understanding of where you're going, who you're talking to, but in terms of what to expect in um, questions or cross-examination, um, how does that work? Um, so in terms of how it works, um, the court protection is obviously it's a formal court, but it sits within a close jurisdiction to family, so it's not meant to be adversarial. It's meant to be very much about information sharing and helping those and assisting the court. So it's not meant to be something that's meant to make you fearful. It's something that you're encouraged to set out the knowledge that you have to try and assist with the progress of the cases. So you'll often find that you'll have a copy of your witness statement in front of you and representatives of each party will go through and ask you some questions on it. My top tip in delivering evidence and responding to questions would be to only answer questions that you have knowledge of. If you don't know the answer to a question, say that. Say that you don't know. It's not either within your expertise to comment on or it's something that you have no direct knowledge of, so you can't comment on it. I think there's nothing worse than trying to be overly helpful and then getting yourself in a bit of a pickle when you don't actually know the answer. So there's no harm in saying, I don't know the answer to that. Or if you don't understand a question, say, can you please rephrase that? Or what do you mean by that? Because everybody there, including the judge, should be there to help you to get the best evidence possible. Yeah, I think you should expect to be cross-examined by um, mm. the parties in the case and expect that to be really thorough and detailed cross-examination, but yeah. not, um, as you say, um, in a sort of adversarial way particularly, um, but it's there in order to get out the detail of, of what you know as um the care provider essentially so yeah. presumably you expect to be cross-examined and you expect to be taken through your evidence in detail so it's really important that you you're familiar with your details so if, if you if you wrote some your statement some time ago it's really important to have refreshed your memory and at least and um be familiar with with the information in and have a copy with you also when you're providing your evidence yes um, and often before hearing you'll find that there'll be you might get a request for updated evidence to make sure that if you did provide your evidence some months ago, for example, and final hearing is listed quite a way after that, then there might be a request to provide updated information. And that in itself helps because you're not there as a witness to provide a memory test. Essentially, you're there to show what's happening on a contemporaneous level within the service. So hopefully the evidence that you're talking to should be fairly updated and it should be fresh in your mind. But absolutely, the best way to prepare is to stay calm, to read your witness statement that you provided, go in with the knowledge that you have a good understanding of the individual, you can have a good understanding of your service provision, you know what um, has been taking place on the ground and you just talk to that in, in, in an open way. I think that's the best way to approach it because you are there fundamentally to assist the court, you're not there because of any wrongdoing. It's not an adversarial situation in that respect. And I know, obviously, Liz, you've dealt with some social care providers in an inquest setting, for example. And I think that would be very different to a social care provider providing evidence in a court of protection role. Yeah. So and at the outcome of a, of a hearing, of a court of protection hearing, if the social care provider is not a party, will they get to know the outcome of the case? How does how would that work? Could you explain a bit for? Yeah, that's a bit trickier, because if you're not a formal party to proceedings, then you're very much at arm's length. 
and you're kept that way right the way through. So often what you find is a care provider might not be a party to proceedings, but the order, and you might have this throughout um, the proceedings, you might have a term allowing permission for orders to be disclosed to the care home manager. That's to enable the care home manager to know what's happening in the case, to know what's happening with standard authorizations being extended or granted, for example. So in a final order, I would expect to see a term saying that there's permission for the parties to provide the care home with a copy of that order. But again, you should only be provided that with the purpose of it being for your knowledge of what happens to the individual. It's not a public document that you should be sharing. It's very much one that you're given to enable your care provision for them. So that's usually the way that they would find out. The official solicitor um, and litigation friends who still be going to visit the individual on the premises. Um, and you might find out a bit more about what's happening in proceedings through roundtable meetings that you're invited to attend. But they should always be dealt with on the basis that there are transparency orders in place, which means that you can't openly talk about quarter protection proceedings. So you should only really be given information as necessary in order to enable a social care provider to carry out its functions and no further. Thanks, Rachel. That's really helpful. So I think we've looked at the ways in which you might be asked to provide evidence. So we've got formal evidence through witness statements or giving oral evidence. You've got the less formal to the informal manner through um, RTMs, which we've looked at previously. And we also touched there about what a witness statement is. So the formal document, considerations to have in drafting it, the format with the COP24, and also I think quite importantly, discussing kind of a few hints and tips which I would hope would put social care providers at ease if they ever need to provide oral evidence in a hearing. So I think maybe the last considerations that we could think of is who is best placed to give the evidence um, and if it's not in a provider's gift to give thinking about who else they could maybe go to or direct an individual to to obtain that evidence from. So in my experience, and again, you said recently, Liz, that you've had experience of a care provider giving evidence. In my view, the best person to provide evidence from a social care provider is the manager. Have you had experience of anything different to that? No, the, 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 I've, yes, the manager or the deputy manager um, mm. is, is able to provide that sort of overview. Sometimes they have in-depth personal contact with P, um, and other times it's, it's doing it from a sort of a senior overview. I would think there would be few instances where individual care workers would be providing evidence unless it was in relation to particular incidents, I suppose. But in terms of yeah. providing an overview of care, I would, yeah, I would agree. Usually the manager or deputy manager um, yeah. to assist. That's helpful. And so if they've got a question um, that might relate to a referral, for example, or the outcome of an MDT, that might not necessarily be within the provider's gift to give and the records available to the care home might not necessarily show it. So often I'm thinking that if it's a referral, then that might be saying, well, actually, you need to speak to the individual's GP or you might need to speak to a community care um, coordinator, somebody who's part of an individual's MDT, really, to get that information. So I think in the same way that when you're giving oral evidence, if you don't know the answer to a question, you should say, in the same way that in providing written evidence, if you're being asked to give something that doesn't fall within the information you have or within your scope as a social care provider, then you should say that from the outset. If possible, direct it to who it might be better to come from. So, for example, a GP um, or another clinical professional body. 
So it's just about being aligned to the fact that you might be asked to give something, but if you can't, then as long as you explain that promptly and you set out the reasons why, that's sufficient in itself as an answer. I wouldn't want social care providers to panic when they forget requests to provide evidence and think that they have to get something together in order to answer the question, because it might be that they're just not the best placed body to do that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's about understanding what you're being asked for um, and the content of that um, information that you've been asked for and making it clear that you're aware of what it is you've been asked and providing it clearly if you can. And if you can't, then um, advising at an early stage, basically. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's one of those situations, again, where it might feel daunting to receive a request for evidence, particularly if you're not um, directly involved or if you've just been recently joined as a party to proceedings. But I think the best way to approach it is just to very calmly read what the request is, go through it, take your time. And if you've got any queries, to raise it to the individual who you sought the order from. I think that's the best way to deal with it and to not panic. Don't put it on the too difficult pile, because then I think often that just makes things worse, doesn't it? When you think, oh, you sat on something, a bit of delay, that necessarily makes it more complex than it probably is. So I think that brings us to the end of episode four. So back over to you, Jill. Thanks, Rachel and Liz, for that overview. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that will, will assist providers in their considerations if they're asked to provide witness statements. And, you know, from what you're saying, people could feel quite daunted, but actually they really don't need to. And I'm sure that the advice that you've given that they'll find very helpful. The next episode, that's episode five, will look at S21A Mental Capacity Act 2005 challenges within the Court of Protection. Quite a mouthful, if I may say so. So I certainly hope that you will... Um, you know, be able to sort of simplify that for our listeners in episode five. Looking ahead, should any of our listeners have any comments, questions or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to get in touch with me via email at j.baker at And now we'll just say goodbye.